Ten seconds, Super. Kiss my heart, I want you to hold it between your knees. There's never a cop around when you need one. You got a little pretty mail thingy. Well, do you, Bunk? I'm gonna nail you for picking your feet and putting Pepsi. This cat shop is a bad mother. Such a Welcome to Vintage Video's 12 Days of Christmas, where as a special treat this year, we'll be reviewing all of our Patreon poll options for December of 1973, overanalyzing what you've seen and spoiling what you haven't. I'm Patrick O'Reilly. I'm Jesse Bayless. And I'm Richard Wells. And today marks the 50th anniversary of the release of Serpico on December 5th, 1973. It was written by Waldo Salt and Norman Wexler, based on a novel by Peter Mass, directed by Sidney Lumet, and released by Paramount Pictures. It's impossible to discuss the production without spoiling a big part of the story, but the opening sequence of the film basically spoils the same point. So let me start by saying that Detective Frank Serpico is a real person, and by is I mean he is still with us, 87 years young today. He is known best for his work blowing the whistle on corruption within the NYPD. In the course of his work, he took a non-fatal gunshot to the face, and after being discharged from the hospital, reached out to novelist Peter Mass to commit his story to paper in case of another attempt on his life. Serpico's partner in the Knapp Commission, Detective David Dirk, assisted in shepherding the story to a film adaptation, though his name is changed for whatever reason to Bob Blair in the film. Producer Dino De Laurentiis bounced from studio to studio with his pitches, concluding that American film companies didn't have the balls to make a film about widespread police corruption. For a time, the film was intended as a Newman Redford vehicle, with Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid as Dirk and Serpico respectively. John Gregory Dunn was attached to write, but turned the job down because, in his opinion, there was no story. The screenwriter's departure was soon followed by the attached director Sam Peckinpah and stars Newman and Redford. Pacino was evidently a hard sell for the lead because he seconded outgoing screenwriter Dunn's assessment that the story was generally boring and only attached himself after many rounds of rewrites, though he has said since that he still considers Serpico to be a personal favorite of his own performances. John G. Avildsen was attached for a time and began a lifelong friendship with the real Serpico, but was cut loose from the film after disagreements with producer Martin Bregman. Avildsen would punctuate every disagreement with a threat to quit the film, so Bregman orchestrated a group of qualified witnesses before coaxing Avildsen to quit again and not have to pay him out of the contract for firing him. Though Avildsen has claimed that he was fired for not casting producer Bregman's girlfriend, Cornelia Sharp, who appears in the film as Serpico's first girlfriend, Leslie. Francis Ford Coppola recommended Scorsese to direct, but the producers opted for Sidney Lumet because of his reputation for bringing things in on time and under budget, which in this case was under $3 million. Yeah, considering that at this point, they're probably over, like, off time, going through all these different writers yeah, and directors changing everything on out set. Constantly. Yeah. But $3 million seems extremely low for what they got out of this movie. Does it? I, I would think so, yeah. I mean, I I don't feel like they, they didn't do any extraordinary, like, set pieces or anything like that. Just that in terms be... of locking down locations, having access mm. to five or six different police stations, mm. yeah. especially because you would expect the city to be putting up a fight about using any of these places. Sure. But it made that money back 10 times over in the box office. Pacino spent months on ride-alongs to develop an understanding of general police work, along with several meetings with Frank Serpico to get a feel for the man himself. Lumet was reportedly surprised by the cooperation of the NYPD considering the story, and even the police on set were supportive once they realized the film wasn't a glorified Hollywood version of their profession. Well, I think that you have to give them 
Right. Yeah. Support. It's like because otherwise you look like you're being difficult on purpose yeah. to further yeah, the problem. Exactly. Serpico himself, however, grew increasingly disillusioned by inaccurate creative decisions on set and was ultimately asked to leave by producer Martin Bregman to avoid disrupting the production. He did attend the premiere, but he left in the middle of the film because he no longer felt a personal connection to the story. The film would land Oscar nominations for Best Actor and Screenplay, but neither won. In 1976, a TV movie based on Mass's novel entitled Serpico the Deadly Game aired on NBC as a pilot for a series that ran for 13 episodes before it was canceled. Do you guys recall the last time we saw Al Pacino as Serpico? It was a poster in the background of someone's room. I don't know. John Travolta's Tony Manero in Saturday Night mm. Fever. A girl mm. mistakes him for Al Pacino at the club, and the next morning he's flattered by the comparison as he eyes the Serpico poster over his bed. Al Pacino. Attica, 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 Attica. Remember, he comes out of the room in his yeah. underwear. Yeah. yeah. Grandma's disgusted. But that's the wrong movie. Right. right? He's Dog Day Afternoon. <laughs> Same director, though. Was Dog Day Afternoon before or after this one? After. Okay. We start with an endless police siren ringing out over black for the opening credits. We cut into the backseat of a police car to Al Pacino as Frank Serpico bleeding profusely from the face. His injury is phoned into dispatch, and after the man hangs up, he doesn't sound surprised. Guess who got shot? Serpico. Think a cop did it? I know six cops said they'd like to. Someone at the New York Times calls the home of Police Chief Sidney Green to inform him of Serpico's shooting. He's headed to the hospital now. He has to be carried through a rear entrance, presumably out of fear that he's still in danger. He's rolled on a gurney directly into the OR, and a team of nurses begin cutting off his clothes and jewelry. We cut back in time about 12 years, from 1972 to 1960, as Serpico is seen at his recruit graduation ceremony. And then, back to the night of the shooting, as Chief Green arrives at the hospital. He orders a 24-hour watch over Serpico to be sure nobody tries to finish the job, which distinctly reminds me of the scene from The Godfather, released one year prior, when Al Pacino hires men to guard his father overnight at the hospital, and they are all suspiciously dismissed from their watch. So he has to guard his father himself, and even sneaks him to a different part of the hospital to throw off any would-be assassins. You and I are going to move, move my father to another room. Now, can you disconnect those tubes so we can move the bed out? That was really good. <laughs> Wasn't it? <laughs> yeah. And now I'll play the clip of me saying it. <laughs> you and me, we're going to move my father to another room. But if all the cops are out to get Serpico, potentially. Why are you bringing cops in to protect him? <laughs> yeah, well, and, and do you know these two in particular are not ones that hate his guts? Like We don't, don't get know. that impression later. More and more squad cars roll up to the hospital as people pour in to check on the doomed officer. Chief Green is allowed to hold Serpico's hand just before he enters surgery, and we cut back to the graduation again. Outside the ceremony, his entire family is here to congratulate him. We jump to him, arriving at his first assigned station. On his way into roll call, he sees a framed picture of Patrolman Paluch and seems to make a mental goal to replace the man in this frame. In the morning briefing, we get a split diopter of Serpico and the Patrolman of the Month sitting near him. On the beat that morning, Serpico is introduced to a deli owner played by Kenneth McMillan, who we always love to see. He tells Serpico's partner, Paluch, that he can have a cream chicken soup on the house, but Serpico has a more specific order in mind. No, I think I'll have, uh, how about a roast beef on roll? Later, Serpico complains that the meat is all fatty, which is better. What's wrong with you? I get, like, the whole concept is that, uh, the deli owner feels, like, slighted, like, it's like, oh, he's asking for expensive food. thing, yeah. Yeah. It's like, then just let him pay for it. Yeah. Paluch says not to complain about free food and that they pay for it by looking the other way when the guy double parks during deliveries. 
Serpico's not totally comfortable with a handout and would rather pay for an edible sandwich. But Paluch, the patrolman of the month, says, take this garbage food bribe and don't rock the boat. That night, they hear a call about a rape in progress. It's outside their sector, but Serpico says it's close enough and speeds to answer it. They arrive to find three men holding a bloodied woman at knife point. They demand Serpico drop his gun and threaten to cut the girl, so when he does, they make a run for it. Serpico manages to catch up with one of them on foot and cuffs him before we hard cut to the woman giving her testimony at the station. The suspect Serpico caught is dragged into an office and kicked hard in the crotch before questioning. The detective asks for the names of the other two men and then cracks him across the face with a phone book. Serpico takes this opportunity to step away and fill out paperwork for the arrest. The next morning, everyone who's been arrested overnight is handcuffed in a line and loaded into a truck, but Serpico asks for a moment with his perp from last night, now badly beaten by the detective the night before. He invites the suspect across the street sans cuffs for a coffee and a chat. He reminds the man that his actions the night before were all above board and by the book. You take off on me, I'll put one in your back. Serpico tells the suspect that he knows he wasn't the ringleader and wasn't even taking part in the assault, he was just the slowest runner. He urges the man to give up the names of these inarguable monsters who are letting him take the rap for their crimes. We cut to a neighborhood basketball game where Serpico has tracked down the other two guys, but he can't collar them both alone and phones for backup. His request is denied because the detective assigned to the case is on vacation. They're here now! It'll keep. No, it won't. Do you guys recall the last time we heard someone insist, it'll keep? God, I, I know it. It's like right there. Uh, cannonball run. That's right. <laughs> Burt Reynolds doesn't want to hear Don DeLuise's <laughs> issue with uh, the current ambulance driver. It's really important. Uh, you see, we need a doc for the ambulance. It'll keep. Oh, oh sure. I know. I know. But listen, I think you should hear it. It'll really keep. Serpico ignores the order and moves forward with the arrest anyway. He manages to bring them both in alone, and the detectives don't appreciate the initiative he's taken and claim both callers at the station. That's my call. We take the collar. Collar like this don't look good a patrolman takes. Now, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait. I don't care how it looks. Now, I did the work, I broke my ass on it. This is my collar. They threaten him with all sorts of career-ending violations he's committed by acting beyond his jurisdiction. As a consolation prize, they offer him an assist on the arrest, and we cut away to Serpico picking up his shoes from his family's local repair place. His brother, Pasquale, is a bit miffed that Serpico missed a recent dinner he was invited to, and learns they were trying to trap him on a date with his ex, but he accepts no responsibility for these undisclosed plans that he dashed. During the next morning's briefing, Serpico copies down info about an upcoming fingerprint class that would grant him eligibility in the BCI, the Bureau of Criminal Identification, a stepping stone toward a detective shield, which is clearly what Serpico's aiming for. We cut to Serpico inspecting fingerprints at the BCI sometime later, possibly years later, he sports a mustache now, and the other cops in the bureau are disturbed by his eccentricities. Yeah, so that, that's this is one of my major issues with this movie, is these giant cuts forward in time. They're always indicated with facial hair. Yeah, <laughs> and, and just the slew of unnamed, identical-looking partners that he gets. Oh, I have names for all of them. Oh, good, because I, I could not keep track yeah. of who they were. I think that you kept better track than I did because I didn't realize such huge spans of time were changing. Well, because we see him <laughs> in the room and they say, oh, if you join the BCI, you could be a detective. And so he scribbles down the info and then a guy says, how long you been at BCI? And he's like, my whole life. So it's like clearly some time has passed unless it's a joke like I just got here. But that, that I took it as a joke. I don't. 
like because he's so weird. Yeah. He's so weird at this. I mean, like I think I think he's I like his character. Yeah, yeah. In, in in the weirdness of it, but he's so unlike all the other cops. I thought he was making a joke. Yeah, but the argument seems more to be the context of the other man's comment was, "You've been here long enough to know better. You don't need to waste your time." double checking all those prints and he's like i don't want to arrest the wrong person yeah i'm gonna take as long as it fucking takes one evening serpico's mother surprises him with a large sum of money she's been saving as a gift to remember her by but it doesn't look like she's dying she's alive for the whole rest of the movie i don't, I don't understand why suddenly she's like here's a bunch of money for you by the way but we cut right from that to him buying an apartment with it outside a couple are selling old english sheepdogs out of a cardboard box they're probably weeks old and already huge the woman does all the selling while her boyfriend just stares awkwardly at the man. And it took a couple watches before I realized this is Tracy Walter, <laughs> but with no lines. Yeah, yeah. He's, he's credited on IMDb as street urchin, but he's uncredited in the film. But he was like one of the bad guys from Raggedy Man. Mm. And Bob. Bob from Batman. He grabs the sheepdog that seemed to like him and takes it inside. We cut to Serpico taking classes at a college and afterward offering a beautiful classmate a ride to work on his motorcycle. She realizes on the way that he's armed, and he eventually admits that he's a cop. We flash forward some time to them going on a date to the ballet. At home, after the show, the girl is dancing around in the street and tries to encourage Serpico to try some moves on his own. He poses like he's about to dance and then aborts last minute. Next life! Come on! Back in the BCI, Serpico is getting harassed again for his oddness by someone who wants to know what he's reading now. My Life by Isadora Duncan. She was a ballet dancer. A belly dancer? No. A ballet dancer. Do you guys recall the last time we mentioned Isadora Duncan on the show? Four friends? Technically, we saw her name in an article on the wall of Jack Reed's apartment in Reds, but before that, she was discussed obsessively by Jody Thelen's Georgia character in Four Friends. I, I feel like people... In the, in the 70s and 80s really wanted you For to know who, who Isadora Duncan yeah. was. <laughs> it's clear this coworker thinks Serpico is gay for liking ballet and it makes him uncomfortable. Even more perturbed by this behavior is James Tolkien's Steiger character who watches horrified as Serpico jetes around the office. In the bathroom, Serpico finds another officer peeking out the window at a woman undressing across the alley. He's mad at Serpico for turning on the bathroom light, but Serpico wants to read while he shits. Do you remember the last time we had a Peeping Tom looking at women across the alley through a window. I didn't really phrase it that well, but uh, you get the, the paper guess. chase. He's just standing in her front yard watching her <laughs> until she closes all the windows. Oh, I was thinking about the one where, oh God, it was back from oh, 80. Where Sharky's Machine. Uh, that's a better one. I was thinking, uh, but I was thinking doing uh, with a spyglass. Oh, I was... I was thinking of Defiance. <laughs> oh, okay. But That's that was a long time ago. Back, yeah. <laughs> With a spyglass? Mm-hmm. It was military. I give up. Stripes. Oh, John, okay. John Lyric right. had walking. looking in the showers. Yeah. And then when the guy comes in, he throws the spyglass <laughs> through the glass flame. <laughs> <laughs> the one you said, Sharky's Machine, that's, that, that's, yeah, that's yeah. a better one. When Steiger finds both men in a dark bathroom together, it's all the confirmation he needs. You're going to tell me you were just doing a little peep and Tom, you were sucking his cock, weren't you? Are you crazy? Yeah, I'll show you fucking crazy. Last week I found a pair of shorts with semen on them. <laughs> I really wanted Serpico to say, well, what if it wasn't semen? What if it just tasted like semen? <laughs> 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 it's like he finds him in the corner. He's like, it's semen. It's fucking semen again. God damn it. I... This exchange is so strange 
because, like, how do you? I feel like he's been on the lookout for something for weeks with, yeah. with yeah, regard to exactly. Serpico specifically. He's looking for a reason to get him out of the department. Insanely, the unproven accusation from Steiger actually puts Serpico's reputation at the bureau in jeopardy. He's actually kind of fed up after two years there anyway, with no path to detective like he was promised, and the man sending him off promises to see what he can do about a transfer, while at the same time offering information about a Catholic conversion therapy program for cops. Like, this this comes up often <laughs> enough. Tolkien is throwing enough people under the gay bus that he's like, we got a whole camp for this now. Serpico gratefully accepts the flyers. <laughs> I love that he never denies any of the yeah, accusations yeah, yeah. either. He's just like, what are you talking about? I don't understand what you're even saying. In my uh, my own personal headcanon is that this is like one of those like self-hating gay guys. Like, For sure. Yeah. He's just like, everyone's gay except yeah. me. God damn it. <laughs> that night, Serpico, who we learn answers to the nickname Paco with friends, goes to a party with his former classmate girlfriend. And every time she introduces him to people as a cop, they shut up and walk away. She has no idea why until he specifically asks her to stop introducing him as a cop. By the end of the night, he seems to have won everybody back over. Paco, everybody loves you! I love you! Serpico checks in at a new station, and the desk sergeant assumes his mustache will be a non-starter, but he gets it cleared with his new captain. He's even given the approval to go fully plain clothes in his own car, which at first I mistook as the captain's cheeky way of firing him. Yeah. <laughs> Make your own schedule too. Matter <laughs> of fact, I don't think we should be paying you. <laughs> but no, he seems to be getting at least some of what he wants here. On the beat, he spots a B&E and chases down the culprit, but as they fight in an alleyway, a squad car skids up and the cops within open fire on the two men, mistaking plainclothes Serpico for another violent hood. I'm an officer, I'm a police officer. Jesus, Frank, how was I supposed to recognize you? You stupid fuck. Frank, I didn't know you. You didn't know me! You fire without looking? You fire without a warning, without a fucking brain in your head? Serpico gives them an earful for the reckless weapons discharge, and even after shooting at him, he reluctantly agrees to give them the collar, considering how poorly it will reflect on them if it's reported that they just randomly shot at a cop for no reason. I, I do love his whole reaction to having just been shot at yeah like he keeps going oh god <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like yeah. he realizing how close he came to yeah. death we cut back to the station where a platter of joints is being passed around the room for the officers to sample and learn from it seems serpico and his new friend bob blair played by tony roberts are no strangers to the substance hey this is real good shit later in a subway station we see the stoned officers wrestling with a potato chip vending machine please i beg of you come out Potatoes, come out. You're pretty fucking weird for a cop. Me? (laughs) (laughs) The two bond over their weirdnesses and an alliance is forged. Serpico is annoyed that Bob's going right into detective work. Back in his apartment that night, Serpico's girlfriend Leslie informs him that if he doesn't propose to her, that she'll be marrying some dude in Texas that she told him about. Obviously Serpico doesn't appreciate the threat, but asks if he can come to the wedding and she says she'll ask Roy. In the actual 12 years the story takes place, Serpico was actually married four times, (laughs) including to this woman and the next one who wants to get married. We cut forward in time again to Serpico fully bearded up now, still working plain clothes on his way to a detective badge, and after a single day's work, someone stops by his apartment to drop off an envelope with $300 in it. Despite his efforts to avoid involvement, he's been cut in on a pot of bribes divided amongst the officers of the department. He hides the money in a book and picks up a phone to make a call. He reports the bribe to his friend Bob Blair, who's now working as a detective in the mayor's office. Luckily for Serpico, Blair is one of the good ones and is excited to make a case out of the bribery operation. Blair says he will take the case to Inspector Kellogg. 
Serpico has reservations because Kellogg graduated from plainclothes and likely banked his share of these payouts back in the day, but Blair insists they can trust him. At a fancy dinner later, it's clear Kellogg is not the best choice of advocate, as he butters a huge plate of lobster and basically blames Serpico for taking the envelope before he even knew it was a bribe. He then lays out the man's options. He can take the case all the way to the top, in which case he will certainly be killed by his fellow officers for disrupting the system. We'll find you pays down in the East River. What's the other alternative? Forget it. Serpico is clearly annoyed and even Blair seems embarrassed to have recommended Kellogg for the situation. Serpico decides to go with option number one, refuse the bribe, make a federal case, and get killed for it. The next day, he returns the envelope to his immediate supervisor and the man says he'll pass the money along to charity. At home later, Serpico is chilling with his sheepdog Alfie listening to opera and catches the ear of an attractive neighbor woman. This particular musical piece comes from Puccini's Tosca, which contains themes of corruption and abuse of power. She likes the music, and he invites her over to listen and share coffee, but she's off to work at the hospital. Serpico asks his captain for help getting out of the plainclothes division, but it's basically understood that plainclothes means crooked and he can't get anywhere. Later, when the captain calls him back, we see him recording the conversation since he's losing trust in everyone. The captain is recommending Serpico as an undercover officer to the Bronx 7th Division, and he assures Serpico there is no corruption to be found there. When Serpico checks in, he's greeted warmly by his friend Tom Keough, played by Jack Keough, but spelled differently. Yeah. <laughs> Literally the first call they get sent on together, Keough is collecting protection money. Predictably, Serpico refuses his part of the payout, and it seems like this was basically a test anyway to verify rumors that he wouldn't take money. Keough implies that his unwillingness to take money implies he can't be trusted, which seems comically backwards. Mm -hmm. Let's face it, who can trust a cop who don't take money? Obviously what he means is that Serpico can't be trusted by police, and more specifically that he can't be trusted to not report their corruption. But he can be trusted, like anything he says is probably true. He tries to sell Serpico on the take, which in this department amounts to $800 a month, which is the equivalent of around $6,000 a month today. That's just from the brides, that's not even your paycheck, 6000 a month. That night, he speaks with his neighbor, nurse, and now girlfriend about how disgusted he is to find the people he idolized his whole life are scumbags. She tells him the story of the wise king. Basically, a witch poisoned a well in a kingdom and everyone drank and went mad except for the king. But when he finally drank and went mad, the people celebrated. The message of the story seems to be, take the money and everything will be better. Serpico gets a new partner, Don Rebello, and learns quickly that the guy is instrumental in the station's protection racket. We see him chase down the head of a local gambling ring to collect from a guy who is behind on payouts. Rubello arranges a meeting tonight at midnight for the last $300 he is quote-unquote owed. He takes Serpico to a sort of bachelor pad apartment he keeps with his extra money. He tries to pay Serpico, who of course refuses the money, so the guy says he'll hold on to it until Serpico changes his mind. Sometime later, Serpico is meeting up again with his former captain, McLean, to discuss how wrong he was about the 7th District. McLean says that the Commissioner Delaney is pleased to have an honest cop in the department, and he is ordered to stay put and continue to report his findings. Serpico suspects they're jerking his chain and doesn't like being told to just wait. Sometime later, Rubello is transferred to another department, and insanely, the bagman duty has been passed down to Serpico's new partner, Al Sarno. On a drive later, Sarno shows Serpico pictures of his family to show how important this money is to him. Like, I had to send my daughter to opera school. And it's like, you didn't have to do that. Yeah. Yeah. Somehow, Sarno hasn't heard that Serpico is clean and tries to pay him. He's dumbfounded to see the money rejected. Serpico calls McLean again to ask what's taking the commissioner so long to reach out, and it's clear they're just wasting his time. 
Blair suggests meeting with the mayor's office, and specifically Jerry Berman, the mayor's right-hand man. We cut to Berman's office, and the man is blown away by the scale of the operation at a single precinct and the inaction of McLean and Delaney. The findings are supposedly reported directly to the mayor. Serpico celebrates with his girlfriend, but then we cut right back to the mayor's office where Berman backtracks all his promises, and it seems he's been educated a bit on what a low priority this corruption is to the city. Well, the, the mayor, they're going to like in an election year, and he right, doesn't yeah. want to like It's like, we got stuff to worry about. Yeah, bad timing. This is when the evidence should be delivered to the press to get the cops and government to take action. Blair stops by Serpico's house, and the two are mad at each other because Blair can't get anything done despite repeated promises, and Serpico isn't grateful enough for the efforts Blair has made. Finally, Blair suggests a connection at the New York Times, but Serpico is already looking over his shoulder everywhere, and the press can't offer him the protection he would need from a story like this. The next day, we learn that Don Rubello, keeping Serpico's share of the bribe, left everyone suspecting that he had reversed his policy. They're furious that Rubello was just accepting double share the whole time, and they implore Serpico to start taking money so everyone else can feel more comfortable. You can always give it to charity, Frank. He still refuses, and Kehoe eventually decides to cut him out of the pot entirely. We split Frank's share from now on. Very schmuck, Frank. Why weren't you just doing this from the beginning? Yeah, why bother? He said no. The pressure is getting to Frank and driving him and his girlfriend apart. Serpico meets with an informant about a mobbed-up bagman who collects his money in broad daylight himself because he thinks he's so untouchable. Serpico has eyes on the next drop and sees a guy tucking cash into a drain pipe. He waits for a while for a man to collect it and then arrests that guy. The man is so sure he's immune that he just laughs off the arrest. Even at the station, the guy gets star treatment from all the other men at the department until Serpico loses his temper and starts tossing him around the office before locking him in a cage. He's fed up that none of these cops want to do their jobs so they can keep withdrawing cash. Another important thing is that he asked for the record on this guy. Right. Uh, and it turns out that this guy went to jail already for shooting a cop. Right. And, and Serpico's like, the guy's a cop killer and you're protecting him. Yeah. You're all laughing about it. Like they were all laughing in the room before Serpico came in to rough the guy up. Serpico's called to another meeting with McLean, who pretends not to already know that Delaney has never gotten in touch with Serpico. More likely, he never contacted the commissioner, though we'll learn later he did. But at this point, I suspected he's just blowing smoke. He didn't even talk to Delaney. Serpico needlessly confesses to McLean that he's in touch with people outside the department in light of the absence of action from the commissioner. McLean loses his shit and storms away. Back at the station, he's ordered to a meeting with Inspector Palmer, who leads him to more higher-ups, Daly and Gilbert, who want more info. They report that Delaney has no idea what he's talking about, and they want to know who he's been talking to, but he refuses to cooperate. The information is finally brought to Delaney, who tells Gilbert and Daly that they should head the official investigation themselves. Bizarrely, Delaney admits here that McLean did bring it up some time ago, and he has done nothing about it. Yeah, these guys look really disheartened by this, like to realize, oh crap, like this corruption is above us too. Yeah. Delaney offers his second-in-command, Chief Gallagher, played by M. Emmett Walsh, if they need consultation. An investigation seems finally underway, and he starts getting shit from his fellow officers about the open secret of his turning on the crooked cops. The commissioner's men ask him to get mic'd up, but his fellow cops are frisking him in the lockers to avoid getting recorded themselves. Serpico is approached by District Attorney Tauber, who asks Serpico to please cooperate as a star witness in his case against the department, but he's been very clear about not wanting to testify. He's given them enough information to prosecute, but they refuse to act, and his testimony will only make him a more radioactive target in the department. I don't really understand that, because everybody already hates him and understands what he 
he's done to them. So why is testifying any different? Because he already has recordings of what they're saying. He has paperwork. He has mm-hmm. names. He has He's given them everything they could possibly need to make the case. And the only reason to put him on the stand is to show that he's an incompetent witness and to to have the investigation shut down and to point to him as an idiot so that he can't testify ever again and and he'll just get killed immediately. Okay, so you think that they're trying to set him up yes. by testifying. Or okay. or at least that's what he thinks. Right. He thinks that they would use him to tank this case instead of to help him. He's like, I already gave you enough information. The only reason that you would put me on the stand is to prove that I'm incompetent and that all my information is bad. Yeah, I just I just thought that a lot of that stuff would be considered like inadmissible or or hearsay or something you know something unless you literally have somebody testifying to say this is all true and accurate yeah at home serpico finds his girlfriend Lori has left and he meets with her for lunch to talk but the talks don't go well and they officially break it off chief green is furious about serpico's refusal to testify and points to a decade-long career of putting away bad cops as proof he can be trusted in this investigation when tauber finally convinces him they can't get the indictment without testimony He stops refusing, but he doesn't totally commit either. We cut to a firing range, and Kehoe pulls Serpico aside to ask what Serpico plans to say on the stand. We cut right to Serpico on the stand, and when a woman asks why Serpico didn't report these infractions immediately, he's not allowed to respond that he did report them, and D.A. Taubman claims the answer is irrelevant because Taubman is only after small fry cops and isn't trying to land Kellogg and Delaney in jail for covering things. Naturally, Serpico is furious about the continued cover-up. Taubman tries to con Serpico with the offer of a detective badge, but the commission says no way, citing Steiger's claims of homosexual tendencies and an unwillingness to report a cop who won't play along with their system. A gold shield for Serpico at this time would convince an awful lot of people. Not while I'm commissioner. Instead, Serpico is offered a simple transfer, and in his first 10 minutes at the new station, his life is threatened by no less than three separate officers who've all heard word about his testimony. One of them waves a knife in his face, and Serpico flips the man over his shoulder and slams him face down on the office linoleum before waving a gun at everyone who tries to interrupt. He makes it very clear that he won't put up with this treatment here, and the men back off. Serpico meets with another inspector, Lombardo, who spends a few seconds pretending to be the new guy Serpico can trust, but then immediately obliterates his own reputation by telling Serpico, you can't pick fights with everybody, presumably in response to body slamming a guy who waved a knife in his face. It's like, no, you can pick fights with that guy. He literally was threatening to kill you in the middle of the station. Serpico and Lombardo investigate another bagman operation and end up jumping across several rooftops to keep an eye on a group of men on the street. When they fall from a fire escape, they accidentally tip off a lookout who rushes into the office to cue the destruction of evidence. Serpico and Lombardo rush in to put out the flames, destroying valuable evidence. The man in charge here thinks it's impossible that his office is being raided by cops. No, goddammit, no, you're not from the borough. I just paid the borough this morning. Hey, Frank. The hell kind of shakedown is this? Who'd you pay in the borough? Nobody. I didn't pay no. Who'd you pay in a borough? I didn't pay no government. Why do you have lookouts if you're so sure that you're not going to get raided? Like, what's the point of that? Turns out this neighborhood is using retired cops as bagmen so that nobody can get fired over their involvement. Serpico and Lombardo report their findings to Gallagher, but he's not much use either because he's just here to protect Commissioner Delaney. Serpico is done working in the system and phones Blair to take him up on that contact at the Times. Blair thinks the timing is bad, but Serpico worries he'll be dead soon, and this is his last chance to get something on the record. He even offers to bring in Inspector Lombardo for legitimacy. 
Lombardo says it's against police rules to report these crimes to the press instead of the proper channels, and he probably couldn't work again after agreeing to this course of action, but he doesn't see any alternative if he wants to continue respecting himself. The story goes out, and the men read the early edition together and celebrate a job well done. Commissioner Delaney tells a sea of press cameras and mics that the department is being smeared, and of course nobody believes him. We get a montage of official denials, and we see Serpico transferred to narcotics in Brooklyn, still no detective badge. Lombardo seems to see it as a death warrant and tells Serpico to please watch his back. We see him alone in a firing range brushing up on his grouping. On his first day, Serpico learns that 800 a month is trash compared to the 30,000 apiece that his men are turning over. They won't let him roll in and fuck it all up. Serpico's new partner is uncredited in the film, but named Detective Partner on IMDb. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, I, I was, I was hoping that that was his name because <laughs> that F. Murray, you would see it on his, on his badge or something. Well, because because it's F. Murray Abraham, and and in Last Action Hero, he's practice. Yeah, partner <laughs> in practice. I, I really just like the fact that he just gets these generic names. Yeah. They send Serpico up a fire escape to single-handedly descend on a drug den. When he gets to the door of the apartment they're investigating, he sees men leaving with cash and follows them to street level. He leads F. Murray Abraham and another officer into the building to the door they bought from, but they let Serpico knock. He gets a foot in it, but he can't push it in to raise his own weapon, and the other cops just stand back and refuse to help, intending to leave Serpico hanging. A man inside raises a small caliber pistol and fires a shot directly into Serpico's face, knocking him back out of the doorway. Another cop from downstairs rushes into the room, and Serpico is left to bleed in the hallway for a bit until we cut back to the hospital from the start of the film as Serpico's parents demand to see their son and are led away by a quick uncredited appearance by Judd Hirsch as a police officer. Serpico has survived the surgery. He was not blinded or paralyzed and his condition is stable. Fragments of the bullet were too hard to remove and so left in his head, but he's expected to make a full recovery. One of the cops guarding the room moves to speak with Serpico, but the other warns him against it. Stay out of there, didn't they tell you? What? The word is don't talk to him. He's no fucking good. Chief Green enters to speak with Serpico, and Serpico points him to the Get Well Soon cards piling up on his side table. It's a bunch of greeting cards scribbled over with death threats from the other cops who wish him deceased. Chief Green is here on behalf of the Knapp Commission, who want him to testify more in exchange for more awards that he can use to wipe his ass with. Lastly, Green hands Serpico a gold detective's badge, and Serpico says he doesn't even want it anymore. He doesn't want a prize for getting shot in the face, he wanted to earn a promotion for being good at his job. Sometime later, Blair arrives to collect his friend from the hospital, and we cut to Serpico testifying before the Knapp Commission, and then he packs up his belongings to move to Switzerland, where he's less likely to be killed by police. We see him on a dock with his luggage and his sheepdog, Alfie. The ship behind him here is the SS France, which would reunite with Pacino in the first scene of Dog Day Afternoon from the same director. The closing epilogue reads, Frank Serpico resigned from the police department on June 15, 1972. He was awarded the Medal of Honor for conspicuous bravery in action. Serpico is now living somewhere in Switzerland. Later, he returned to upstate New York to continue fighting police corruption. That part is not in the epilogue. But, but after the but film but came out, that happened. happened. Mm -hmm. That's Serpico. I think it's pretty good. I like it a lot. Uh, I think it's like if Prince of the City was good. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, it's definitely, definitely better than Prince of the yeah. City, but it was very boring for me. And... Uh, just the constant transferring from department to department and getting to all these new partners and is it was very repetitive in that yeah like I get it that's the point like he's like he he's trying to fight this corruption and it's everywhere but I don't know I I feel like 
it should have focused on like one or two of the departments sure rather than like what he goes through like five or six but he's kind of a hot potato you know he's yeah. getting tossed around because nobody wants to work with him that's the whole point he just kept getting shuffled so much because they wanted to lose him in the in the mix mm. yeah it, I, I liked it i i think I, I don't think i've seen very many younger al pacino performances sure most of the stuff i've seen you know is probably from the 90s or you know later uh He's such a goofball. Yeah, he's really fun. Like, you know, he's so silly. And I, I, it's just like, I don't really think of him as silly. Like, I think of him as kind of a crazy old man now. Well, he does a lot like... of that instead of a woman, <laughs> which I think is part of why he got the Oscar for that, where he's just like, hoo-ha, like just yeah. like saying weird shit constantly. Yeah. Like whatever pops into his head, he just does it or says it. Yeah. Um, but I guess he, there's bits of that in everything, but there's a lot of it here. It's a lot of it here. And I just think of him as more serious than this. And so I, I, I enjoyed that aspect of it. But it wasn't yeah. just him. It was just like this character that he played, just, you know, he in the face of all these other cops he's still silly yeah um so i liked that yeah no it's great and i i love the juxtaposition between this and prince of the city because that character the treat williams character is already he has no charisma going into the film but the fact that he was taking money the whole time until just randomly decided he was going to turn on everybody whereas this character from the beginning wanted to be the good cop and is doing everything right and by the book and he's not lying to even the people that he's he's trying to get in trouble for this he's like no what you're doing is wrong and i'm gonna keep working until i find the people that will prosecute you for what you're doing and so there's no secrets about it it just makes him so much more of a likable character even though for the rest of the movie he's doing the same thing which is you know testifying with all these different commissions and trying to bring these people to justice and the other thing that's annoying is that even after treat williams decides he's going to turn on all of his friends who he was taking money with he still is like prideful of their like wrongdoing mm-hmm. he's like excited when he hears that he's going to fight the system and and keep his money and it's just like what is wrong with you what kind of got me was that i got the feeling that nothing is happening at the end of this movie like he has this he has like this big like speech moment and everyone applauds him but i don't feel like like we we get no like so and so's gone to jail or is under right, yeah. investigation. Yeah, I mean, he, or, yeah, he got on the SS France and he went to Switzerland yeah. and they went right back to splitting up the money. Like, yeah. there's no way that didn't happen. Yeah, but maybe that's part of the point. Yeah, that it's just like yeah, no, this this will by nature of the way things are structured, it will always be rebuilt the same way. It's like something that that all civilizations build: police bribery and bows and arrows. So like two things that all cultures develop at some point. Is, is that a thing? <laughs> <laughs> like you're saying it like that's a thing. <laughs> I feel like bows and arrows is one that supposedly all cultures develop. Uh, nothing's nothing certain but death and taxes. Yeah. Our director here was Sidney Lumet. Before this, he directed 12 Angry Men, Fail Safe, and Bye Bye Braverman. Later, he directs Murder on the Orient Express, Dog Day Afternoon, Network, and Equus. We've seen his work now on The Wiz, Just Tell Me What You Want, and Prince of the City. He's back right away next season with both Death Trap and The Verdict. That's a busy year. The writer here, Peter Mass, for the book. I didn't recognize the other titles that were adapted from his novels. The screenplay was written by Waldo Salt, who has writing credits back to the 30s. He wrote Blast of Silence, Midnight Cowboy, and The Gang That Couldn't Shoot Straight before this. His next script was another favorite of mine, Day of the Locust. Another screenplay credit for Norman Wexler, who also wrote Joe, Saturday Night Fever, and its sequel Staying Alive, and Raw Deal. The music here came from Mikis Theodorakis. Most of his composer credits before and after this are for Greek films I didn't recognize. The cinematographer is Arthur J. Ornitz, 
who previously lit Charlie, Minnie, and Moskowitz, and after this next stop, Greenwich Village, and so far on the show, an unmarried woman and tattoo. The editor was Dee Dee Allen, who previously cut The Hustler, Bonnie and Clyde, Little Big Man, Slaughterhouse-Five, and so far on the show, Night Moves, The Wiz, and Reds a few episodes back. Later, she cuts The Breakfast Club, Henry and June, and The Addams Family. The other editor credit was for Richard Marks, not that Richard Marks. Later, he cut Godfather Part Two, and so far on the show, The Hand and Pennies from Heaven. After that, Terms of Endearment, The Adventures of Buckaroo Banzai Across the Eighth Dimension, St. Elmo's Fire, Pretty in Pink, Broadcast News, Say Anything, Dick Tracy, Father of the Bride, As Good As It Gets, and You've Got Mail, among many others. Al Pacino with Serpico here. He's been nominated for Oscars for his performances in Godfather, This, Godfather 2, Dog Day Afternoon, and Justice for All, Dick Tracy, Glengarry Glen Ross, and The Irishman, with a win for Scent of a Woman. Amazingly, we haven't seen him since Cruising, which uh, has been a while. Yeah, yeah. Obviously, he's Michael Corleone in the Godfather trilogy. After this, he shows up in Dog Day Afternoon, Scarface, Dick Tracy, Glengarry Glen Ross, Scent of a Woman, Heat, but he's probably best known for playing himself in Adam Sandler vehicle, Jack and Jill. Was he nominated for an Oscar for Dick Tracy? He was, yeah. Because he is amazing. He really is. <laughs> I mean, honestly, that, that whole gang is really wonderful, but he's, he's particularly insane there. John Randolph played Sidney Green. We saw him last as the chairman in Escape from Planet of the Apes, and he returns for Conquest of the Planet of the Apes. Jack Kehoe played Tom Kehoe. He's back later in this Christmas series as Eerie Kid in The Sting. We've seen him on the show now for On the Nickel, Melvin and Howard, and most recently Reds. Later he shows up in Midnight Run, Dick Tracy again, and The Game. Cornelia Sharp played Leslie. She was Lavinia Keene, the central James Bond stand-in for SHE security hazards expert. We'll see her again next season as Ruth Hopkins in Venom. Tony Roberts played Bob Blair. He's Warren LaSalle in The Taking of Pelham 123, Rob in Annie Hall, and we saw him last as Tony, a version of himself in Stardust Memories, and before that as the grandson in Just Tell Me What You Want, also from Sidney Lumet. The pansy grandson. Alan Rich played D.A. Tauber. We've seen him now as Montrose Meyer in Voices, Mary Fields in Hero at Large, and Jarvis in Leo and Laurie. James Tolkien played Steiger. He was Mr. Strickland, high school principal in Back to the Future. He's also Wigan in War Games, Detective Lubick in Masters of the Universe. We saw him recently as George Polito in Prince of the City, and he actually reunited with Michael J. Fox for a Tales from the Crypt episode, Season 3, Episode 3, The Trap, that Fox directed in 1991. He reunites with Pacino in Phil Spector, 2013. Richard Ferrangi played Corsaro. He was Detective Marinaro in Prince of the City and the Ambulance Driver in True Confessions this season. He is also Tony Darvo in Midnight Run and the Con Ed Supervisor in Ghostbusters 2. Where do you think all this is coming from? The sky? <laughs> Alan North played Brown. He was Lieutenant Moran in Highlander, which is getting a remake, by the way. Henry Cavill. Exciting, right? Yeah. yeah. He's Governor Andrew in Glory. M. Emmett Walsh was Gallagher. This is our seventh episode for M. Emmett Walsh after Cold Turkey in the 70s and Brubaker, Raise the Titanic, Ordinary People, Backroads, and Just a Few Back Reds. He's also in Mikey and Nikki, The Jerk, Blade Runner, Blood Simple, Fletch, Critters. More recently, he's appeared in Calvary, Adventure Time, and Knives Out. F. Murray Abraham played Detective Partner. This was only his second role after They Might Be Giants in 1971. Boy. <laughs> Later, he reunites with Pacino as Omar in De Palma's Scarface. He's Salieri in Amadeus to an Oscar win for Best Actor, which is why when he shows up as John Practice in Jack Slater 4, Danny says, careful, he killed Mozart. Mohu? Zot. Zot. 
Later, he appears in Mimic, Star Trek Insurrection, 13 Ghosts, and more recently he was on Louis C.K.'s FX series, and most recently as Burt DeGrasso in The White Lotus. Isn't he like the writer on, um, God, what's that show? Oh, yeah, Mythic Quest. Mythic Quest, is that the one that uh, Rob McElhaney did for Apple? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, he's like the he's like the the writer of the games. Oh, okay. And, and like comes up with all the he's like he's like a crazy drunk, crazy like old man. Just, I'll have to check office. that out. Don Billet played Detective Threatening Serpico. That's how he's credited. I think that's the guy with the knife. We saw him last as Detective Bill Mayo in Lumet's Serpico remake, Prince of the City. Val Basoglio played Weapons Storage Officer. He was Travolta's dad in Saturday Night Fever. Raleigh Bond played Mr. Barrett in Pennies from Heaven and a minister in Elvira, Mistress of the Dark. Sully Boyer played Principal. He was Mulvaney in Dog Day Afternoon with Pacino. We've seen him so far in Night of the Juggler, Kidnapping of the President, The Jazz Singer, and Fort Apache the Bronx. John Brandon played Police Lieutenant. He was an immigration officer in Scarface, possibly the one who nicknamed Scarface. Where'd you get the beauty scar, tough guy? Eating pussy? I'm not gonna get a scar like that eating pussy. Sam Coppola played cop. He was Dan Fusco in Saturday Night Fever. Judd Hirsch played a cop, uncredited. This is his second ever credit. He's back later for an Oscar nomination in Ordinary People, and he's famous as Alex on Taxi. He plays himself for a scene on the taxi set in Man on the Moon. He's Goldblum's dad in Independence Day and its sequel. I met him when he guested on Adult Swim's Tom Goes to the Mayor, where I interned in college. Beyond that, he's probably best known for his recurring roles on Numbers or The Goldbergs, and last year he was nominated again for his part in Spielberg's The Fablemans. Tony Lobianco played cop uncredited. He was Sal Boca in The French Connection. He's back later this series as Vito Lucia in The Seven Ups. Kenneth McMillan played Charlie. He's right up there with Joe Spinell in terms of multiple appearances. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, we've seen him so far in Hide in Plain Sight, Little Miss Marker, Carney, Borderline, Eyewitness, True Confessions, Whose Line Is It Anyway, and most recently as Max in Heartbeeps. And the shitty cop, or no, he was a firefighter in Ragtime. Yeah. yeah. Uh, later he shows up in Amadeus, Dune, Cat's Eye, and Armed and Dangerous, among many others. Judd Oman played Doctor Uncredited. He was Nicaraguan captain in Red Dawn, but I recognized him most as Mickey from Pee-wee's Big Adventure on the run from the law for ripping mattress tags. <laughs> Stephen Perlman played Desk Sergeant. He was Rabbi Cohen in Pie, Dr. Schiller, and Die Hard with a Vengeance. Tracy Walter played Street Urchin. That's the boyfriend of the girl selling dogs. He's Bob the Goon in Batman 89. We've seen his work so far in The Hunter. The <laughs> the, uh, the Hunter. I'm just remembering him screaming through the window and the door to the classroom. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Freaking the hell out. Uh, he was in the Octagon last year. He was in Getting Wasted for a belated minisode. And more recently, he was a cop in The Hand and one of the people harassing Sissy Spacek and Raggedy Man. And then the last credit here is Mary Louise Weller, who played Sally, the girl at the party. She was Mandy Pepperidge in Animal House, and she's back next season as Mrs. Polly in Cue the Winged Serpent. I think that's everything for Serpico. If you have any thoughts you'd like to share, you can find all our socials at linktree slash vintagevideopod. Thank you so much for listening, and I hope you'll join us next time when we'll be discussing The Wicker Man, which IMDb describes like so. A Puritan police sergeant arrives in a Scottish island village in search of a missing girl who the pagan locals claim never existed. We leave you now with the trailer for The Wicker Man. I could a tale unfold whose lightest word would harrow up thy soul, freeze thy young blood.
to investigate the disappearance of a young girl. Where is Rowan Morrison? If Rowan Morrison existed, we would know of I suspect murder. Sergeant, I've already told... In the name of God, woman, what kind of mother are you? That can stand by and see your own child slaughtered. You are the fool, Mr. Harry. You're liars. You are despicable little liars. Oh my god! <laughs> 